Hi, this is the best bit of the Breakfasters for the week ending October 15. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, we talk about uh, when it's a good time to buy a new kettle. 20 years seems to be the average, to be honest. And Fee Wright pops in to review books, talking about Diana Reed's Love and Virtue. We also have a chat with Santilla Chinepe about her SBS documentary, Our African Roots. And Digger talks about tomato planting season and how to grow the perfect tomato. We looked into the bad side of stolen goods and Dr Jen went to Scientific Town on Only Children. Melbourne's own Triple R. Uh, I'm living in a rental at the moment. I've spoken um, recently just about the oven door that had broken off and we tried to get it fixed a few times. Um, and whilst the oven door was actually off, did a thorough clean of it, so very proud of myself. And last week, uh, we didn't know this was happening, but they replaced the entire oven. So we've got a brand new oven, right? So firstly, I'm spewing that I cleaned the old oven for no reason because I've yeah. just replaced it. But a brand new kitchen appliance... I, I, I didn't realise how excited that was going to be. I guess we're in lockdown, so this is the most uh, exciting thing that's happening at the moment. But when we were just used to having this terrible oven, it would take 50 minutes to cook roast potatoes. Guess how long it takes now? 15, 15. 25. Oh, 30. But yes. It's, <laughs> no, you know, the only reason I say that is because we're staying at a house at the moment that um, has this oven that I've – it's like – I've never experienced anything like this. I have to Good. check. Yeah, roast vegetables in like 10 minutes, probably oh. too fast. <laughs> but it's kind of exciting. I just have to cut the burnt bits off. But it's, <laughs> it's so exciting when you have an oven that's like... So efficient. Yeah. Oh, my God. It is just cutting down. The first couple of times we burnt the crap out of some of the stuff and like the grill, wow, normally like if we put gems on or something, it might take 10 minutes, two minutes, two or three minutes. It's oh. insane. Mm. Um and so I was just thinking of other, um, I, I guess, appliances. You spoke about, did you get a kettle? My dad just got a, a kettle. I did get um, a kettle. You did get one? Yeah. Yeah. God, it's beautiful. Is it? Hey, how loud is it? So silent. Oh, my oh, God. that's good. For two years, we put up with this kettle that every time we'd turn it on, it'd be so loud we couldn't hear the TV. Oh, so- and it was, it's like a $40 kettle. Why didn't we just, And then we replaced it and our whole lives changed. Oh, yeah. And I just, you know, when you think, why? Why did we... Why did we put up with that for so long? <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it annoyed us. Mm. We'd fight about it. Why are you turning the kettle on now? I know. You know. We have to pause what we're watching if the kettle's on. So yeah. like, oh. oh, that's terrible. It's so, yeah, uh, inconvenient. This operates like a, you know, like a Porsche or something. Like, yeah. Or like, a, like an electric <laughs> car and a light. Purring. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Uh, but the, do you think when kettles were, when people had stovetop, when people boiled tea on their stove and it whistled, mm. do you reckon there were more completed cups of tea? Like I... I Oh, yeah. you got to get up. You have to tend to it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. And rather than so sitting in the corner looking at an electric kettle that bubbles like, screw you, I'm not going over to you. Yeah. You've made me angry about my tea and I'm now watching my show. But you've got to get up. You've yeah. got to take the kettle off the stove. And so yeah. well, I'm up now, I'll have the tea. Absolutely. Mm. It's so, yeah, I, I, you do sometimes have to press it a couple of times because you get distracted with television or whatnot. Um, my dad had a kettle... Oh, for 20 years, I reckon it was, oh. at least. And he moved into a new apartment. So everything's lovely. And then he bought this kettle over. I'm just like, Dad, get a new kettle. He's like, oh, it still does the job. It's like, when was the last time you cleaned it? It's yeah. like he must have it next to, I don't know, the stove and everything that he's cooking is spitting onto his kettle. And it was just <laughs> oh, disgusting. Oh, that's awful. Anyway, he got a new kettle. My, bloody Christ. My uncle had a cup of 
uh, just a mug that he would drink black coffee out of, never clean it, ever, ever. For years. That's not okay. Because it's like, well, it's the same coffee and it's me. It's not okay. Oh, It's not okay. It's not not how it works. (laughs) Well, I agree with you, but but then I can't, all I can come up with is it's not okay. And that's not a reason. Yeah, well, I think there's probably layers of bacteria, surely. Yeah. I mean. He's bacteria. Maybe he's gut health. But it goes off. But it doesn't stop. Like there's a reason that you clean a baby's bottle, you know. I guess if it was a black coffee. Black like, coffee. Oh, no milk. Mm, adds the flavour. Oh, no milk. Would he rinse it? I don't think so. Wouldn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> black coffee I'm probably more inclined when I'm thinking yeah. milk. Oh, yeah, oh, line ball. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Line mm. ball. I'm pretty sure it's pretty clear <laughs> oh, with, so a, with some milk. Yeah, oh, my no, God. You know what I got? Um, a, a $7 jaffle maker. And I reckon it lasted me 10 years. But in the end, though, it did spark, so I had Can to get I rid of ask, it. Can I ask, was it a jaffle that where the ends were folded or was it a sandwich maker? Oh. A press? Like a sandwich a, press? Yeah, or a, like that made the, the, the triangles. triangles. It yeah. was one that made the triangles. Cool. Yeah, so, and it was tiny, but... Yeah. You, didn't you? Sorry to do this, but didn't you need to put the filling in so that the ends closed rather than just spill out over the sides? Like, was were Jaffa makers overrated? Is like, did, was it seven dollars? Did you pay too much? <laughs> no, Jaffa makers aren't over mate, overrated. Do no, you not, do you not have one? They can be difficult, yeah, but they can also be amazing. Okay. You want a, you want a bit of spillage, yeah. You want a little bit of cheese spillage, and mm. if you're having um, tin spaghetti, you want a tiny little bit of ooze. Yeah, have Just you done not too much eggs in them? Oh, like no. egg and egg and what ham. did you do with the egg? Where did you guess? crack it? You crack it in there and then you have ham, like ham and egg toasty. Haven't done it? Me wow. neither. I was just a friend of mine has done it. <laughs> maybe. I mean, what, no, I've what done happened? I don't know why I find it. that gross. Like maybe in my head it wouldn't cook necessarily cook the egg and it so that's why. It wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, mm. and wouldn't it make the bread, I mean the bread's soft. It's not like the bread's toasted. So mm. it's just like wouldn't the gross sloppy white absorb into the bread? Uh, no, I think it's similar because it cooks through. It's not too bad. You know what I mean? Like if you've got oh, tin yeah. spaghetti, that's a bit. Because I've been pilloried publicly for my predilection for like artisanal bread around here, like unbelievably. <laughs> like as if, as have if you? what? Around yeah, I here. have. Well, Bobby, you heard it? Was it in Brunswick East? Yeah, well, in in the building. Oh, uh, and it, but jaffle makers, you need the nineteen ninety six. Yes, yeah. you know, packaged preservative white bread, don't you? Yeah, you do. That is true. You know what really makes you? If you're ever doing calorie counting on one of those apps on your phone. They make you really think about the choices that you've made because you ha- if you say, like, you have a piece of toast, you have to go, like, oh. bread, is it fortified with iron? Is it the <laughs> is it toast? Is it bought? Is it, you know, and then you're just like, yes, I've got the cheap shit bread. And by the time you get through everything, you're like, oh. Triple R. Right's here to bring some much-needed erudition and poise to breakfasters. Morning, Fee. That's the first time anyone has said those two things. <laughs> no, not at all. The bars oh. um, I feel my brother getting ready to text me to mock me in the background there. <laughs> uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I am so excited to be um, here this morning because I've brought in a book that almost passed me by. Um, and for as many times as I've said, don't judge a book by its cover, I still fall trap to that myself. 
Um, and I've brought A Love and Virtue by Diana Reed in today. And um, this was a book that I'd seen around a bit. I'd seen a bit of advertising, but the cover and the title didn't really tell me anything at all about it. And um, I was a bit iffy about the design, so I held off. But then I read the synopsis um, and a friend told me that they thought I'd like it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is actually one of a book about one, a novel about one of my favorite, favorite subject matters or genres. Um, young person at a university, which sounds <laughs> silly, <laughs> but um, they call they call campus novels. If you're going to be going to be fancy, um, and I'm sure listeners, if they pay attention, they might be thinking, how can she be reviewing yet another one of these books? And I'm saying they're one of the most reliable genres ever. Just just get around them. Sweet. So. Love and Virtue, we meet Michaela, who's starting her first year at Sydney Uni, and she's from Canberra, and she's living on campus. She's very smart, hardworking, and won a scholarship to um, live on campus, so all of her fees, et cetera, are all being covered by this scholarship. Um, during O-Week of her first year, she um, has a sexual counter that she is ambiguous about. She was heavily intoxicated, so was the person she slept with. She doesn't remember much about it and doesn't have any idea as to who this person was. Um, from a reader perspective, she's pretty laissez-faire about the whole thing and just kind of continues on with her first year. She builds up friendship groups, becomes particularly close with Eve, who lives in the dorm next door, attends philosophy lectures, and she's really, really close with Eve. And I love how much of this book revolves around their friendship and their relationship. And... Uh, but what's been really interesting to me has been um, the fact that Michaela is studying and living in an environment which is just filled to the brim with privilege, and she is aware that she is privileged to be there, even with her scholarship, while many of these students are unaware of this. And so through Michaela, we experience this meshing of analysis of power, sex, consent, and privilege. And this is pretty familiar subject fare for a campus novel, but the fact that it so handily skewers the Australian university experience is just amazing to watch this unfold because there's so few really great Aussie campus novels that, um, I mean, I graduated 20 years ago and there's still bits of this book where I'm like, oh, that's so good. Oh. What, like, what, what makes it specifically Australian when you're reading it? Um, well, the fact that living on the dorm is not um, a common experience yeah. generally. Most people, you know, that I know um, generally they live in share houses nearby or live at home because they go to uni at the same city where they grew up. There's not that same um, kind of American experience of travelling to go to college, sharing a room, having a roommate and, you know, all those sort of like uh, – Felicity-style TV shows <laughs> and books that exist around that kind of Americanness of it. Um, but hearing um, people experiencing house parties and discussing those things with an Australian view in mind and then also the fact that it's quite strange to live on campus unless you're exceptionally wealthy um, is, is something that I think is covered really well here. So it covers it comes under that kind of like this is like another layer of privilege. So um, to go to university in and of itself um, is something that is connected deeply with privilege. And then on top of that, you've got the living situation. 
and the politics that go along with that situation. So the politics of um, these people in these dorms probably all went to private schools together. They probably went to private boarding schools together. And so they have all of this history when they arrive at uni, whereas um, I think the American experience tends to emphasise that it's a completely clean slate. Um, so Michaela does have that clean slate, but everyone that she goes to school with already know each other from these very exclusive privileged high schools that they went to before that. And there is a, a scandal on campus that involves the men's dorms and it, some of the things that we've heard about um, a variety of men's dorms, especially uh, post me too. And some classmates asked Michaela about it and, and you know, they move out. Um, later on, they say to Michaela, how can you still live there? And Michaela reminds them that she's on a scholarship and she has nowhere else to live if she moves out and she can't afford to rent nearby. And a smug reply is that this, the classmate says is something like, yeah, but what is it really costing you? And I thought that that was such um, an amazing example of the microcosm of power, privilege and wealth um, that is just so perfectly encapsulated in one, one little moment is that um, ethics at this point is something that is kind of excluded to you unless you are independently wealthy. Um, and, and Reed has this amazing ability to write about ugly emotions, um, jealousy, betrayal, anger, rage, that um, women may feel and experience, but it's not always articulated in literature. So this book's really interesting because it technically occurs in flashback, but basically the first thing you learn is that after Michaela graduates from uni and is an adult, she hates Eve. And then the story jumps to her first year of uni and I was hooked because I wanted to know what happened there. And that leads me to my next point, which was this book was a total page turner. I had to stay up late to finish it. <laughs> I had to know what was happening next. I was completely obsessed. Um, I didn't expect that to happen. And if you found yourself struggling to get into a book at the moment, this book might be the one that like kicks you back into a, a reading cycle. Um, and I know there's going to be comparisons with Rooney, um, but I think she's much funnier and also much darker than, than Rooney. You know, she doesn't need to write a 15-page email about Marxism when she sleeps with someone in order to explain her characters. And I, I like Rooney, but I think that... You love Rooney. I love Rooney, yeah. Look, look real talk. But Reed is, is far more succinct um and that's a real skill in itself you know she's she's able to incorporate an analysis of um of power and privilege in a short interaction as opposed to needing to write an exegesis email um and i actually thought of it a lot with um brandon taylor's real life which i also reviewed earlier this year maybe march because um and i'm sure other reviewers have thought of Taylor as well because it is so cutting at points and so raw. Um, other campus novels might have these perspectives included, but they don't carve out society as well as Taylor and Reed um, have done. Um, and now I kind of wanted to discuss the one thing that I didn't really like about the, the novel, and I would describe myself as the key demographic for this book, is that the cover made 
no sense to me at first. And it's called Love and Virtue. And it's a green cover with kind of like, um, like a, what, what I now would interpret as a university crest mm-hmm. on it. And I didn't know that until I read it. And I just saw it out and about that I honestly, hand to God, thought it was a self-help book. Oh, it does kind of look like one, doesn't it? And it did not resonate with me and at, at all. And that's why I wanted to do the review because I thought if I, who, let's face it, I'll read anything, was hesitant, what hope does a less intense of a nerd reader have? me. <laughs> 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 Look, I picked it up because a friend told me she loved it and I agree with her a lot. And also two authors I loved were quoted on the cover. And I was like, well, that's three. So I've got to go with that. Uh, What a fantastic attitude to question your own biases like that. Yeah. Mm. I was like, you know, you you, you know, no one knows everything. Got to give it a go. No one knows everything. True. (laughs) And you've turned out, it, it turns out you love it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, doubt yourself constantly and you too can, can be like me. You never know what you'll find next. It's Love and Virtue by Diana Reid out through... Ultimo Press. Beautifully done. Fee Wright, thanks so much. Thanks, team. Triple R. Santilla Chinepe is a journalist, filmmaker, author and regular contributor to the Saturday paper who serves on the federal government's advisory group on Australia-Africa relations. She's behind the new documentary, Our African Roots, which premieres on SBS this Sunday. And to tell us about it, the producer and presenter joins us now. Santilla, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be back. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to see you. Um, What are you looking into here when you say it's about time we recognised our African roots? Oh, um, I so essentially the film is exploring um, the, the sort of uh, forgotten stories of people of African descent um, throughout Australian history. So we go through um, foundation stories. So we start with the arrival arrival of the first fleet um, and sort of move chronologically up until um, World War Two, I think. And we go through sort of foundation stories that we tell ourselves over and over again and uh, highlight people of African descent that were also pivotal to those stories but have been, for various reasons, um, erased from those from those foundation stories. So that's essentially what the film's about. Mm. Um, yeah. You're laid flat pretty early on uh, by the recoil <laughs> of a musket. Can you walk us back from that? <laughs> yeah, that was such a fun experience, actually. Um, I mean, I, I yeah, it was it was such a fun experience. But but essentially, um, in that story that you that you pick up on, I was um, trying to piece together the life of um, a first fleet um, African convict by the name of John Randall. And um, John Randall was uh, a formerly enslaved man from the United States who's believed to have fought with the British during the American War of Independence. Um, he was deemed a loyalist um, after that because obviously the British lost and so he couldn't return to um, his home. And um, he found passage to England and it was there because, you know, London was um, not only multicultural but, you know, economically it, things were pretty tough around that time um, during the 18th century. So um, he, uh, you know, fell on crime and that's how he ended up being convicted and, and, and transported and then finding himself in um, Sydney 
And because he was a former soldier, he had a skill and um, he was appointed by colonial authorities as one of the three um, musket shooters. Um, and yeah, so that's how that's how he finds himself, um, you know, operating um, this firearm. Um, and that's why I was a, was playing around with it to sort of get a sense of um, not only what 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 the weapon felt like, but also what what that experience might have been like for him. Yeah. Um, yeah. You also came to Ballarat. I did. I did. <laughs> I, I came to Ballarat um, to tell the story of um, John Joseph. Um, I don't know about you, but I was told the Eureka story um, growing up, but didn't hear about John Joseph. And John Joseph turns out played a very, very central role in, in, in the events that happened that 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 day, um, he's alleged to have fired the shot that killed um, the British officer leading the charge, um, and he was also the first to be tried um, at the trial. So it was, there were 13 um, men that were tried for treason, and two of them were of African descent. One was a Jamaican man, um, and the other was an African-American man um, by the name of John Joseph, and that's who we highlight in the film. Um, and yeah, his story, his story in itself was remarkable. Obviously he was, uh, put first because, you know, um, the, they, they thought that people would be very quick to convict a black man and, um, find him guilty, um, because of, you know, unconscious bias, racism, all that sort of stuff. But, um, unfortunately the jury thought otherwise and he was acquitted and obviously by him being acquitted, it meant that everyone else that followed all the other minors were also acquitted and that obviously changed the course of, um, Australian democracy, as we know, but yeah, um, the, to be able to highlight his story um, by going to Ballarat and, and 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 experiencing what he may have experienced was was pretty special. Mm. Do you know what the relationship was like between the African convicts and Aboriginal people? Yeah, that's a very um, interesting question and a very complicated one to answer. Um, and I say complicated because I think understanding that convicts and not just um, African convicts but all convicts were essentially transported here against their free will so they were all sort of captives in this system as well so that relationship in itself is 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 is, is an interesting one because they also don't have power um i think where the, the those interactions become a little bit more interesting is when people serve out their time and become free um and so i guess in 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 that sense it's sort of um, you know, you, it's easy. You can sort of draw more conclusions when you're sort of going, okay, people are making certain choices based on their free will. So we sort of look at, uh, we, we touch on that complexity um, early on in the film. Um, you know, we, we, we've got expertise from a, a First Nations um, historian who, who's done some research looking at the interaction between the, um, some of the African convicts and um, the First Nations groups. But again, because you're dealing with individuals, these stories aren't singular. They're complex and complicated. They, and they range from, um, you know, uh, difficult ones to, to ones that involve um, tales of romance and, 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 and friendship. So, you know, it, 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 it's a very, very complicated one. And I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you also touch on Fanny Finch, uh, who has a, a pretty cool story as, as one of the women featured in this. Are you able to tell us a little bit about, about her? Yeah, so Fanny um, was uh, uh, she came as a free settler, so she wasn't a convict. She was a free settler that that, that arrived here from London, 
um, and she uh, was a single mum, moved to Castlemaine, had four kids, and became the town's first businesswoman, um, apparently. And this is this is all according to um, research that's been done by an academic called Casey Sinclair, and, and she's featured in the film, and she's the one that sort of um, has been working to bring um, Fanny's story to greater um, awareness. But, yeah, Fanny was um, – uh, you know, she knew her rights because she was a business owner. She she knew that she she had the right to vote. You know, um, as a ratepayer, and even though as a woman that wasn't something that you know she knew would 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 go very far, she still wanted to um, take that stand, and she did. Um, even though the vote itself was um, the ballot itself was invalid, so she was she yeah she was she's she's a very very interesting character, and 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 given that she is. Um, one of the first named women in Australia to to vote. It's remarkable that we've gone for so long not knowing her name, and you know we know a lot of the names of women that um, contributed to um, universal suffrage and 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 advancing the rights of women and girls. But Fanny's is one of those that we don't really hear about. So um, it felt really really important to put the spotlight on her as well. Speaking to some of the descendants of John Randall, uh, who you mentioned previously, you say, why do we make a big deal about race and I'm wondering if you've through the process of putting together the documentary you come to a reckoning with that or if your position has morphed or changed or if you have any conclusions about that perhaps rhetorical question you asked yeah I mean you know race racism it's all very it's it's pretty complex because you know we're dealing with power structures and I and I don't know if you, you can land anywhere um but what the experience taught me meeting the descendants. I think, uh, you know, I've been spending, I've spent the past four years working with the archive on this. And a lot of the stuff that I've been working on, you, you, you tend to intellectualize it. You intellectualize a lot of these ideas and you, you get to a place of understanding of how these power structures like racism were created and, 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 and how they've gone on to create systems of advantage and disadvantage. Um, and you can be quite skeptical about sort of figuring thinking about what's the way forward is there a way of actually dismantling you know these 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 power structures and meeting the descendants i have to say was probably the most surprising and rewarding experience for me because here were individuals who are now identify as white um, who have a black ancestor and it's because of their ancestor that they lay claim to their australian identity um, and they have embraced these ancestors, you know, fully and want people to know about their ancestors and are very proud of their ancestors, but also acknowledge that there was a time within their own families where people weren't as open, as uh, receptive to having this part of their heritage acknowledged. And part of that was because of um, the White Australia policy, obviously. But to sort of see these um, descendants today, you know, talk about these stories and talk about even just the, the painful process within their own families of trying to make sense of it and coming out on the other side was really encouraging for me because it left me feeling hopeful in a way that I didn't expect to feel because I sort of thought, okay, if people can make sense of this in the, within their own families, because for them, this is a personal history. It's not an intellectual exercise, you know. Um, perhaps there is hope or perhaps there is something that the rest of us can get out of this that, that are trying to figure out what is the way forward you know and and so yeah so 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 meeting meeting the descendants was 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 rewarding for me in so many levels and it really helped 
with my thinking in that sense. So yeah, I, I'd have to I'd have to say that. Well, these and a ton more stories, including what touching on the Invincibles and the origins of bush bush ranging, uh, can be seen as part of our African roots, which is uh, premiering this Sunday on SBS at 8.30pm. Santilla, so great to chat. Thank you so much for having me. Always love being back on. So, yeah, and so glad to hear that you enjoyed it. Brilliant. Triple R. Dirt, dirt, dirt. It's where you grow your plants. Dirt, dirt, dirt. Hey, you got some on your pants. Can you stop saying about dirt? It's that special time when we get down and dirty with Justin Diggett Carvely. Morning, Juzzy. Morning. <laughs> <laughs> Morning, morning. How are we all? Yeah, we're good. We're good. really good. What's uh, what's happening this October for you? Well, it's tomato time. We've got to we've got to be serious. This is going to be a very serious discussion about tomatoes. Okay. <laughs> because gardeners take it very seriously. Don't, aren't you serious about your tomatoes? Oh, uh, I mean, I love no, a tomato. Yeah, I mean, I love a tomato, and I, I give it a shot, but I don't know if I'm serious about it. I mean, oh, come on! You like you don't critique, fl- you know, flavor versus flesh ratio and all that kind of stuff. I think the, I think the only time we've ever done that is when you, when we used to be able to see you in real life and you used to bring in <laughs> five tomatoes for us to test the flesh oh. off at this time of the year. Well, there's for us full gardening weirdos. This is really important time to get cracking. So, tomato season is something that is you know competitions are had. Um, prizes are won. So I thought I'd give the listeners a few extra tips to maybe send them over the edge this year to join into the tomato growing teams and, like, take it to the next level. Cool. So there's a few things um, that you need to address. First one is soil temp. Yeah. So tomatoes won't start growing until the soil has reached a minimum of 15 degrees. So you can have them in your hothouses and maybe keep potting them up. You need to get your thermometer out or some sort of mechanism to measure the soil temperature of the root zone or the rhizosphere. So, you know, you get those probes that you put into a steak to see if it's ready. Mm-hmm. And it's, what's what's the temperature of a medium rare steak? Isn't it like 57 degrees or something? Same with your soil for tomatoes. It's got to be 15 degrees at about 15 centimetres. Well, how would you even begin? If it's not that, how would you change it? You can't. You've got to wait. Okay. Some people, you've got to wait for the weather to pick up. So some people actually go out there like with a pizza stone, like put bricks in the oven and place bricks all around where the plant is going to go oh. and literally heat them each day to warm the soil up around them and heat the air temperature around them. Does it work? No, what about a hairdryer? Yeah, it does. No, uh, well, hairdryer is only going to dry the soil out. It's not going to increase its temperature long term. So... Yeah, this is where, again, microclimates, some people would put them into te- like terracotta pots or concrete pots and keep them on paving because that's obviously going to keep the soil temperature warmer than what the ground soil would be. It's quite the effort, isn't it? <laughs> I, I told you this is serious. This, that's only the little one. Next one. I still Sorry, is, just quickly, I still can't get the image of a hairdryer out of the soil. <laughs> it's a joke. It's like, that is it. the billboard for COP26. <laughs> it truly is, isn't it? I know. While singing O Pomodoro. Because <laughs> singing works, you know. Uh. Um, <laughs> um, the next one is um, your calcium ratios. Now, we all monitor our calcium ratios all the time, yeah? Sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> but calcium is really important for tomatoes. Um, one, obviously, calcium, its main function in plant growth is to strengthen cell walls. But in tomatoes, it also helps to prevent blossom end rot, which is when the tomato, when they start to fruit, the bottom of them starts to rot out and goes black and yucky. And it's actually quite a common thing. So you need to get calcium into your soil now because it's a slow-releasing element. So if you've got soil that's acidic, you could just use garden lime because that one, it helps correct the, the acidity, but it also, there's calcium uh, in, in lime. If you're a little bit alkaline, you'd look for dolomite lime. Now, dolomite lime has calcium and also a bit of magnesium, which also helps out. If you don't have either of them and your soil's pretty good and you know pretty neutral, then you can just go with old-fashioned blood and bone. Obviously, there's a lot of calcium in blood and bone, so get a handful of that into your soil while it's heating up. Um, you still with me? Anyone yeah. still there? I'm just thinking about how much I don't want to be the blood and bone neighbour. <laughs> yeah. You know? It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult with pets. You've got dogs and cats. Oh, it's yeah. very difficult. <gasps> yeah, because they will do You just want to eat you, it. Yeah, as soon as you pull up from the shop, you click and collect, they can smell the bag. So where are they – I I was getting hung up on dolomite lime and and how it's made. Yep. But I didn't want to interrupt. Um, So it's – now I've got to go back to it. Dolomite lime uh, is – it's essentially like – it's a naturally occurring – now I've gone – I've drawn a blank. But essentially it can add calcium to your soils, but it doesn't affect – the pH, it right. doesn't, it, it's it's very slow releasing and it doesn't affect the pH. Okay. Um, it's a carbonate. There you go. Oh, I knew I had to get it out there. So it's, um, uh, yeah, calcium, ag, magnesium, carbonate. All right. Recommended by Digger for tomatoes. Um, pinching. To pinch or not to pinch. This is an ever-going question with tomato growers. So as they start to grow, they send out side shoots. And people who like to stake their tomatoes are forever pinching out the side laterals because they just want to have one straight stem to make it easier to tie up. Yeah, makes perfect sense. But if you don't pinch out, you end up getting larger yields because you get more tomatoes on those side shoots. So it's a it's a tricky one. Look, I prefer not to pinch out, one, because I'm lazy, um, but two... If you're going to be pinching them out, most people just throw them out. I think if you're going to do a, be a pincher, you might as well then pot them up because those little side laterals can lead to more tomatoes by via a whole new plant. So it's kind of like taking a little cutting, which is very difficult to do with annual plants. So I don't know. So I'm, pinching I'm still on the fence with that. Pinching is only about keeping a neat plant. There's you won't because yeah. ah oh, someone had told me once you should do it because it stops the green growth, which helps you get more red you know actual fruit in the end um because i've never done it i just let mine go bananas well it just redirects all the energy all the nitrogen into that one centralized stem rather than dispersing it through a network okay so yeah me me i'm I'm, I'm (laughs) (laughs) um up to individuals i i can sometimes admire really well staked tomato i'll look at from afar and go look you've done a really good job there but all my gardening instinct says oh it's tortured you know the poor thing's tortured it's you know it's got to work so much harder against gravity to get water and nutrient up to those fruit um yeah anyway but each of their own there's no there's no tomato police going around yet so we're, <laughs> we're all good 
Give it time. Yeah, in, 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 in Diggo's uh, dream world, as Tomato <laughs> believes. <laughs> yeah. Head of horticulture. <laughs> <laughs> you get a fine. You get a fine. You get a fine. Um, probably the last one I'll just finish on. It's probably one of the, the very few times in horticulture and suggesting fertilising that your nitrogen would be less than your phosphorus and potassium. So remember when we look on the back of fertiliser packets, there's an NPK ratio, nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. Mm -hmm. Ideally, your nitrogen should be the lowest number in that ratio. You need way more phosphorus than you do nitrogen and you need way more uh, potassium than you need phosphorus. So look for something that might be like a one five four or something like that in a ratio back when i I want to dig into that but back when you made school lunches because there was a school to go to Mm. uh if you ever found a sandwich back in the school bag with a tomato that you would lovingly prepared and grown and cut did you crack it Absolutely, absolutely. So I've gone to, we've gone, this is in our household, Confessions of Horticulturists. We actually put little containers of the tomato for the sandwich separate from the sandwich and they put it in when they get to school. So that it gets soggy. Yeah. Good one. That is good parenting. And you know the little, the very low, thin, like little Tupperware plastic storage, they're only like, you know, five centimetres high and they're flat. Yeah, those ones. That's the only use for them. There's no other use. You can't put a half-cut onion in them. You can't, you, you can't do anything else with them. But tomato slices, they're perfect. God. I wonder what the other kids think. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's why my kids call me butt-faced doofus. Because <laughs> they're getting bullied at school because of their tomato packets. <laughs> oh, so much to learn. Uh, Digger, that's that? Yeah, that's that. Good on that's you. Fine. Have a great day. Happy growing, bye. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. I was driving in Mooney Ponds recently and I saw um, this house had a big sheet out the front that they had put up and it had writing on it and it said, thanks to whoever stole our trailer, it was meant for our wedding to transport things. Like this year, I was like... Oh, those poor buggers <laughs> have gone to this this effort. Someone had taken a photo of it and they popped it on social media and they actually started a, a GoFundMe page uh, to get mm. them a trailer and they, they got a trailer back. Um, but then I was looking into it and thousands of trailers are stolen in Victoria every year. It's just a thing. that How inconvenient. So is it because you just have to hook them up and drive off? There's not much more you have to do? I guess so. And a lot of people have them on their nature strip or they just have oh, them kind of at the that's front a good and stuff point. as well. So. It's a noisy. Like trailers are – it's not a subtle – yeah. Robbery. There's also clanging and stuff. Yeah, unless they're away or something, I guess. But, yeah, I was surprised. A, a trailer is the adult version of having a swimming pool. <laughs> like, you know, someone comes out of the blue and – Wants to borrow your trailer. Oh, I see that everyone wants to use it all the time. Yeah, yeah. once you have oh, a trailer. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're that guy. Yeah, yeah. my dad had a trailer, and we yeah we you borrowed saw more it. people than you. <laughs> oh, you had a trailer. Or oh you... no, my, no, my dad had a trailer, but we would want to borrow it. But then none of us could drive with the oh. trailer, so we had to borrow dad and the trailer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, okay, can you just come, Dad? You can mm. God, there. Pa- I think I tried once reversing. What a pain! Yeah. I don't think. Yeah, it's it's definitely a, a skill in itself. Um. But it did, it did make me think of things that uh, the people have said. So, oh, you know, a friend of mine, she was a tradie. Uh, she is a tradie. She had her, um, her ute stolen and it was just uh, 
thousands and thousands of dollars worth of all her tools in the back of her ute. She's like, I don't care if you steal my car, but just give me my tools back. Like that was, yeah, inconvenient for her as well. Um, But, you know, when I was in high school, I had my Doc Martens stolen and I had... I. Like eight ups or eight ups, eight ups, yeah, right, eight yeah. ups, green. Oh man, how I, cool! I, I was the only. Everyone had black ones, uh, and I had green ones. The only one that had green, and I absolutely loved them. I wore them every single day. Um, we were in, and I'd worn them every day. So I had like they were worn. They had scratches, and I remember having a, a metal and plastics class, and we had spray paint, and people were spraying things out the front, whatever work they were doing, and I got a green spray paint. Uh, spray paint can and sprayed my shoes so that they look brand new again <laughs> that I mean that was so bright green it was a perfect color but that was so shiny and I remember the teacher coming out going Bobby did you just spray paint your your shoes I said no yes <laughs> I said, okay give me the spray can um but they were really bright and everyone knew that they were mine. Anyway, I had uh, a gym class and so I put my uh, runners on for the class and then when I was leaving and catching the bus, I left my Doc Martens. I, I forgot about them. And I remember the next day I was like, oh, no, I've left them. So I went to go and have a look for them. They weren't there, couldn't find them. Anyway, two or three weeks later, another girl in my year level rocks up wearing the green Doc Martens. Get out. Right. And everyone in my year level has gone, oh, my God, she's wearing a Doc Martens. Because I told everyone, I was just like, oh, my God, I can't find my green Doc Martens. Like, someone's got them or so something's happened. And she came wearing them and everyone's just like, are you going to say something? I go, well, I I mean, surely she's not wearing my green Doc Martens. They're like, they're yours. They've been spray painted. Like, they're so yours. I was like, well, I, I have to say something. And so I confronted her and she was with friends and I'm just like, excuse me, I think you're wearing my Doc Martens. She said, no, they're mine. I said, no. They're my Doc Martens and they went missing a, a few weeks ago. They've actually been spray painted. They're my Doc Martens. Where did you get them? She said, oh, they were a gift from my boyfriend. I said, well, your boyfriend stole them? Give me my Doc Martens, right? It was this big thing. And she goes, well, all right, you can have them, but I'll have to give them to you tomorrow because I haven't got any other shoes. I'm like, right. And she goes, oh, I go, excuse me, <laughs> they're my Doc Martens. I think you're being too reasonable in this situation. Like I would have ripped them off her feet. I know, right? But yeah, she, she denied it. She didn't know they were a gift and blah. blah. I'm just like, gift? what is this mystery boyfriend? Was yeah. he around? A so, gift from my boyfriend. Yeah, right. So his his younger sister had Jim after me. Oh. Uh, so she's taken them. She must have given them to him. And yeah, so because I trailed her back, I'm like, how the hell did he get them? Anyway, um, I remember leaving, and because so many people it was at lunchtime, and everyone was just watching this interaction, and they're like. What happened? Because I walked away and she walked away. They're like, what happened? You didn't get your shoes back? I'm like, she's bringing them tomorrow because she's got no other shoes to wear. Yeah. And they're like, my God, what did she say? Anyway, I told them the whole story. And then the next day she gave them to me. And she was like, kind of threw them at me like I had the problem. Like, excuse me. Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, you, it's a good result. It was a good result. I got them and then I wore them every single day afterwards. How dare you What a great adult restraint you had. I can't believe how adult you were about the whole thing. Mm. If that yeah. was me, it would have blown up bad. Yeah. I bet. Even the yeah. confrontation. <laughs> you get the sense. <laughs> yeah, I think even the confrontation was tense, like just going up and asking. It was, yeah. But anyway, I, I did get them back, Because For most people it would be like, the only way this ends is I have to roll you for my own shoes. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yes. And I'll, you're walking home in bare feet. <laughs> yeah. I oh. had a, uh, a Swiss Army knife that I loved, really loved, big, big chunky, expensive Swiss Army knife. Anyway, it got stolen at, uh, I'll just say it, Mornington Cricket Club. And then I was like, it's gone. Someone took it out of my bag. Then I was checking in every day and they said, we found it and it's behind the bar. 
and so I was like, I went in, you know, I was like, all right, I'll be in on Wednesday or whatever. And then someone stole it in between. They, I, no. It got stolen oh twice. No. A double steal. I'm so angry at the double, <laughs> double steal. steal. I can't, but that's, I blame that on the person that rang you and didn't put it. You can't just leave. You can't say I found this stolen item. I'm just going to leave it exactly where I found the stolen item. Yeah. Mm. Jerks. Yeah. Scummy bogans. Disgusting. Oh, <laughs> all right. The guy that owned a pocket knife. <laughs> Triple. It is time for Weird Science with Breakfast's favourite child, Dr. Jen. Morning, Dr. Jen. <laughs> oh, Daniel, what a lovely way to start my Wednesday. I'm, I'm a favourite child. Don't, I don't think my parents would agree, but, yeah. you know, that's okay. Don't tell the others. <laughs> Well, you know, like all good parents, my parents would say they don't have a favourite child. But I need to know before we get started on this topic, which today is a bit of a minefield, I have to, I yep. have to admit, are any of you only children? No. 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 Okay, phew. Excellent. We've sorted <laughs> then. But next question, have any of you ever passed judgment on someone about the way they've acted because you know they're an only child? Yes. 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 Yeah, me too. Isn't it terrible to admit? Because yes, there's this yes. very life stereotype out there. So tell me, what, what do we think an only child is like? Selfish. Gets their own way. Yep. Uh, Anything else? Isn't used to compromise. Doesn't know how to cooperate. Doesn't know how to share. <laughs> <laughs> just, just don't hold back to <laughs> narcissism in there perhaps spoil that, does that word come to mind yeah, yeah. social skills lacking spoil <laughs> yeah self-absorbed <laughs> i'm just kidding i've got so yeah, many I'm friends with only children and this isn't for you um and sarah how how do they feel i mean do they are they aware of of your prejudices here I mean, I probably have never vocalised them until now, to be honest. So, <laughs> Is your phone suddenly going hot with a whole lot of nasty messages? I never knew you felt that, that way about me. Hopefully not. So, so, you know, we have this sense that someone who's grown up as an only child isn't very good at taking other people's needs into account. And the idea is that, you know, if you're a kid growing up who gets your parents undivided attention, all their love, access to all their resources. So that's a really negative thing. It makes you spoiled. It makes you not very well adjusted to, to operating in a society with other people. And that's been around for a really long time. So in the earliest, early 20th century, people were concerned that if you grew up without siblings, you would become hypersensitive. So if, if your parents concentrated all of their worries and fears and hopes and dreams on one child, that child would be oversensitive and turn into a hypochondriac. Which, you know, that seems realistic, right? Yeah, put that on the list. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, hypochondriac. And then there's this really quite influential and well-known psychologist um, in the 20th century who had the very uh, formal sounding name of Granville Stanley Hall. And he was quoted as saying, and I reckon this is pretty full on, that being an only child is a disease in itself. (laughs) Oh, my God. How harsh is that? Oh. <laughs> we found the one last remaining prejudice that you. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, there's, there's really? lots of research. There's lots of research that have looked into this stereotype and this prejudice, and it's very strong, particularly among people like the four of us who grew up with siblings. We immediately judge and have major um, prejudices against people who didn't. We just assume that we're better and that they never learned how to be a proper human being. It's yeah. been shown in many places around the world that we're just we're not very nice. We just make assumptions. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the problem was us all along. <laughs> exactly, Daniel. That's what I'm here to tell you. No, but I am here to tell you, you won't be surprised to hear that research has been done to work out. So first, the first thing to tell you is that there's been research, plenty of research to show that the stereotype is alive and well, no question. But there's also been a lot of research to look into whether it is backed up by fact. Are only children, are people who grew up as only children more selfish, horrible, blah, 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 all the things we all agreed on earlier. Um, and I'm here to tell you that the evidence doesn't back up the stereotype at all. There's very what? little evidence to show that only children are different in any way to the rest of us. Who so... did this research? Was it an only child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who paid for it? Only children. <laughs> yeah. Or... <laughs> yeah, big. I was going to say what the version of big only children are, but I don't know what that is. Uh, big, uh, big, big tobacco. Farm. Yeah, big farmer. <laughs> Anyway, so I want to tell you, I want to dispel the myth. Let, let's be big-hearted people here and admit that we've been wrong all these years. Uh, and I'll tell you what some of the research says. So first of all, I found a study from way back in 1986, mm -hmm. and they found the only clear difference between only children and children with siblings once they'd grown up was that um, children, only children tended to have stronger relationships with their parents closer bonds with their parents because, you know, they were their companions growing up. So that's kind of nice. That is lovely. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. And then there was a big study in Germany a couple of years ago. They looked at 2,000 adults. Very creative title when they published this study. They called it The End of a Stereotype. <laughs> and they did a whole lot of tests uh, to look at people's levels of narcissism and they found that only children were no more likely to be narcissistic than people who grew up with siblings. Uh, there was a big study in China that just came out last month they played a version of what's called the dictator game. And we've talked about some of these games before. It's kind of a setup to look at how much, uh, how willing you are to, to give away money in different circumstances, essentially. And they found that only children were no more selfish than children with siblings, growing up with siblings. And then there's been research to look at kind of personality traits. They found no difference in levels of extroversion, cooperativeness, um, personal control, leadership, any of that stuff. Yeah. But might, might China want to go into bat for only children <laughs> for a salient policy reason? Oh, and absolutely. And But, I mean, that's why a lot of the research has been done there for sure. But yeah. I don't have any suggestion that the research hasn't been done well. But yep. they've just got a big pool of only children to that's look right. at. <laughs> mm. But I have to tell you that there is evidence in the other direction. So there is evidence <gasps> that only children tend to be more motivated to achieve highly. There's some evidence that only children uh, do more years of education. There's some evidence that only children end up with more prestigious careers than those of us slumming that, it with siblings. Is that because they're stressed out because they have to live out all of their parents' dreams because there's no one yeah, else to... Yeah, possibly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've got I've to prove my parents' investment was worth it. Yeah. yeah. 
But I found a really interesting study, and I want your thoughts on this one. One study found that children who grew up um, as only children are better creative thinkers and better problem solvers and more flexible in their thinking, which, you know, that would make sense, right? You could argue that if you grew up as an only child, you have oh. to rely on yourself. You have to be more inventive when you're playing games. Uh, there was another study that found that only children um, were more likely to have imaginary friends when they're little. You know, they, they come up with friends to hang out with. So Aww. what do you think? I think that's really sad. Creative? And that's the best evidence you've said to have a big family. <laughs> um, I love this because I don't know, I, I'm, um, you know, I don't know if June's going to have a sibling. So uh, someone once told me that uh, when they said, we, we, do you know if you'll have more children? I just said, I don't, I don't know. And they went, well, it would be selfish not to. And I went, oh, <gasps> oh. God, that's, that's harsh. I know, it's really harsh, harsh. But now I feel like I'm just going to carry a recording of this segment around in my pocket every time someone has that conversation with me. That's that's it's cool. That's and I'll say thinking, actually, Junior will probably turn out far better. Yeah, you're actually better than everyone. So, <laughs> do you think it's kind of this like confirmation bias too, where when someone does something that's whatever selfish or shitty, and then you go. They're an, when they're an only child, you you notice that of them. You don't kind of when someone does something shitty in there, you don't go, oh, she well, she's one of four. Of course, that's why she did that, or they yeah, did that. A hundred percent, Sarah. And it just shows kind of how fickle we are. Yeah. You know, if we have this bias, which we've all admitted that we have, even though I've just said there's evidence that it's completely wrong, chances are we'll continue to carry this bias, even if at a very subconscious level. So, of course, you notice when someone who's an only child acts in a way that backs up our <laughs> completely wrong and shameful <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> biases. <laughs> There's Another a- study I looked at was interesting because, you know, we assume that, that uh, kids who grow up without siblings don't know how to socialise as well. And they found mm. that um, only children at primary school had the same number of friends and friendships of the same quality as children in other groups. But they did find that only children were both more likely to be victims, so to be victimised, but also to be aggressive in kind of peer groups, which suggests that maybe we learned how to manage conflict with others better than only children do. So ah. interesting, right? Absolutely. I echo the sentiment of a texter who said, only child here, and this is a lot to take in before I have my second <laughs> coffee. <laughs> so they are more aggressive but otherwise successful and get along with their parents. Yeah, and I think the problem may just be the stereotype itself. Because we expect only children to behave a certain way, we therefore discriminate against them or make unfair mm. generalisations about them and they live up to that. I mean, you know, if, you, if you're if you constantly told that you're selfish, maybe it's a fait accompli, I don't know. Dead set, oh. s- self-fulfilling. Well, there's, yeah. there's also, yeah, I wonder if the stronger bonds with the parents occurs because they come home from school and need more cuddles because they've just been harassed at school. Yeah. <laughs> oi, oi, oi. Maybe. Well, Sarah, I'm reluctant to say this given what you just said but I I feel like I would only be doing my duty properly if I let you know that there is fairly strong evidence that um, only children at least some only children do regret growing up without siblings and as adults they say I'd wish I'd had a playmate when I was a child to hang out with so I'll just leave that hanging Sarah sorry thanks no pressure gee I hope June has a good imagination (laughs) to invent her friends doesn't matter she's gonna be really successful (laughs) and love me heaps thanks Dr Jan See ya. <laughs> Woo! Uh, that's right. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. 
feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>